Happy New Year from our friends over at Manscaped. The ball has officially dropped, but that does not mean that you have to drop the ball on your balls. It's time you bring sexy back in 2022. Go to manscaped.com and use the code KiwiTalks for 20% off plus free shipping. And step your game up with da -da -da -da, Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0. The highlight is the recently launched fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Listen to that sound. That is the sound of magnificence. This thing is great. It's an electric trimmer that's designed to trim hair on loose skin, whether it's on your arms, your legs, below the waist, your back, your backside crack. And on top of that, it's got a 4000K LED spotlight, so you can use it even in the dark. It greatly reduces chances of nicks, ingrown hairs, and even grooming accidents, so I cannot recommend this enough. It is amazing. And on top of that, we have got the Crop Preserver. Now, you often use deodorant on your armpits, so why wouldn't you use it on the smelliest part of your body? This is a must, and you can follow it up with the Crop Reviver. This thing smells heavenly. Ah, it's amazing. Amazing, amazing package. And on top of that, we've got a Manscaped travel bag that is included. So you can put all your goodies in there and make sure that the bathroom is not messy and you get told off by the wife, because you don't want that, do you? I cannot recommend this package enough, or even the items individually. I love it, my wife loves it, so I'm happy to announce this exclusive offer to you, 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code KiwiTalks at Manscaped.com. Just enter it in at the checkout. So start off the new year going balls to the wall with our friends at Manscaped. Now, with that, let's get on to the show. Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is a program director at DigiPen, but he worked at Nintendo for quite a lot of years at NST. Uh, worked on games such as Mario vs. Donkey Kong, Pokemon Puzzle League, and Metroid Prime Hunters. He is a veteran of composing and sound design. I'd like to welcome Lawrence Schwedler. How you doing? Great, great, Reese. How are you? Good, good. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out. I'm doing this yeah it's a pleasure so i suppose the first thing i want to know is how you actually ended up at nintendo or nst specifically in the first place yeah it was a, a kind of a long funny road and and you know now that i'm i'm old and i look back at my life i can <laughs> sort of see the patterns but when you're going through it you can't see the patterns right you can only see them in retrospect so um i wound up at nintendo after um working as an audio director and a sound designer and composer for video games for about, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was about eight, eight years, almost a decade. I had a variety of other companies. And um, so I had worked at um, the Dreamers Guild, which was out in Chatsworth uh, in the LA and Los Angeles area. And that was an amazing company. And we did some interesting games there. Um, and then from there, I went to JVC Digital Arts Studio for a couple of years, which was in Torrance, California. and um, and one day I got to work and uh, it was like two weeks before Christmas and my daughter was just about to celebrate her first birthday and my wife was pregnant with our second child <laughs> and I get to work and the doors are uh, locked and uh, they, you know, they said, sorry, <laughs> you don't work here anymore. Nobody what? does. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a, a peculiarly um, a phenomenon of the uh, game development business in the, particularly in the 90s Stu companies would go under and if they weren't properly managed they wouldn't really 
let you know in advance. <laughs> so, you just, so it was anyways, two weeks before Christmas and I'm out of work and, you know, it was kind of that. Um, and uh, so I kind of, I knuckled down and I just said, okay, I have got no room for error here. Right. I mean, I've got, I've got a family <laughs> and I'd had a good career so far and it, and the video game business seemed to be doing well. Um, so I just said, well, I just got to find another gig. And I just, I just knuckled down and it took me about, it took me about 10 weeks, uh, 12 weeks of intensive work every day. Um, and back and then that would have been in the, um, oh boy, uh, that would have been in the late nineties. So that would have been in 1998, 1999. Um, uh, the internet wasn't what it is now, uh, but there was a, a site and it's still around called Gama Sutra. If you're familiar with it, great yep. gaming yep. site, just huge. And they've been around forever. And I still remember I went on Gama Sutra and I saw there was a job app for, they wanted an, an audio director at Nintendo Software Technology in Redmond. I'm like, it was sort of like the clouds open. And I'm like, Lord, this is too good to be true, right? It can't, it, this can't be a thing, right? But, and, and I was trying to temper my expectations so that I wouldn't get, you know, all, you know how it is, you get all worked up and excited, especially when your life depends on it. Yeah, so I enough. said, and here's my attitude. And I tell my students this, I said, I applied for the job and it was literally an online application. It was just like, tell us who you are, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think they said, send a resume and uh, we'll get back to you. That was it. And it took me like half an hour. I was on, but did it. And I hit send and I said, okay, I'm going to forget about that. I'm never going to hear from them again. Right. This is like this plum job and that's it. And I put it out of my mind and I got back to the grindstone, you know, looking through the, you know, trying to find a job. And it was like two weeks later, I get this phone call from uh, the, the director of production at the time, Andy Hickey. And he's like, hello, Lawrence, would you like to, like to, we'd like to fly you up for an interview. And I'm like, holy crap, nobody's ever <laughs> flown me anywhere for anything, much less a job interview. So anyway, I got the job and that's, that was 1999. And I was there for 12 years. It was the best job of my life. Wow. What an amazing story. It's awesome. It's, I don't think I've told that story before, uh, so I'm glad you asked. It's, um, but that is really how I wound up there. But you know, it's it's like anything else. It's before that I had gone to, uh, uh, you know, UCLA, and I had an advanced degree in classical guitar and so and electronic music. So I had these skills and I, I had some job experience. So it wasn't like it just fell out of the sky and into my lap. So what do they say about you know? luck being just sort of the confluence of what opportunity and preparation, right? You know, you know, it, it, good luck won't happen to you if you're not ready for it, you know? So I think maybe that's kind of what it was, but it felt like just, just golden luck dropping out of the sky into my lap at the time. So when you applied, did you have to send some demos? Or a well, there was, yeah, there was more to the story than that. I kind of short circuited it to make it, to get to the punchline. Um, but so after that first um, phone call, um, it was before then there was, there was a series of other things actually. So I sent the initial app after I sent hit send. And then I got an email like two weeks later that said, um, send us your demo reel and stuff. Because back then it wasn't all online. Like it is now. I couldn't just point up to my website. Right. Mm. And so I sent him my demo CD back in those days, you made an actual CD and I made a, a at the time it was very, uh, cutting edge it was a dual mode cd so it was a dvd and a cd oh. <laughs> so you could put it in and you could browse my custom little website on the disc so you know because anyway so it was my portfolio and um and then i also sent along a, a an album that i'd done an, on cd format and it was the music i had done for a game 
called Fairy Tale Adventure 2, which was a, a sequel to a really important early, early, early video game by, done by David Joyner, who goes by the name of Talon now. But in any event, in that game, all the music that I did was all MIDI files. It wasn't rendered audio. So the difference between uh, rendered audio is, is you make a recording and now you have a digital recording, like a WAV file or an AIFF file, right? That's yeah. called rendered audio. But but before you get there, if you're using electronic and virtual instruments, you, you, you just capture performance data called MIDI data. And that's these are tiny little files. They're binary files and they're very um, malleable and fluid. And um, they have a much lower um, bandwidth and overhead hit on the CPU when you're when you're uh, running a video game. So that game was released years and years ago on the for Windows PC. And all the music was played not as rendered music, but as MIDI music. And that's the way that video game, uh, arcade video games and early console games were done. And, and some of the work I did at Nintendo as well, the early games like po Pokemon Puzzle League. Um, and MIDI data is preferable in many ways for video games because you can, you can, manipulate the data at runtime. Like if you're in a major key, you can make it go to the parallel minor key almost instantly with a little bit of code and you don't have to, it's not a lot of heavy computation on a waveform. So in any event on this CD, I put on the cover of the CD, I said, all the tracks are recorded directly off of Sound Blaster AWE32 sound card without any intervention. They were just literally, they weren't all sweetened in a, you know, in a big studio with a bunch of fancy plugins. They were literally the way that the MIDI files sounded on what's called a general MIDI sound bank. And that was the key because anybody who had that sound card would have that sound bank built into their computer. So when they ran our game, these music files would play and they sounded, anyway, I thought they sounded really good, but because I put that on the cover of the demo, the, um, the, um, technical director, uh, the audio programmer, Rory Johnston, who's still there, by the way, he's the director of production now. Um, that's what caught his eye. It wasn't, it wasn't the fancy music production or even the fact that he liked the music, which they did, but it was the fact that on the cover of the demo, I had put that these were MIDI files rendered out in real time. And because that, I think it set, perhaps it set me apart from other applicants for that same job who were sending in really lush recorded demos, which, in video games is obviously important. You have to be able to write and produce good music and it has to sound great. But a lot of video game, being an audio director of video games is really a lot about managing the technical bullshit of, of, of working with computers. Yeah, It's, it's always about limitation. You're just limitation, limited left and right all the time. So anyway, that's what struck uh, Rory's eye. And that's when he saw that and he said, let's interview this guy. So that's how I got to the interview. Ah, that's actually a good segue into your stuff for Metroid Prime Hunters because what you are able to produce with the technological constraints, and I imagine you took some influence from the actual Metroid Prime 1 and 2. You, I'm not sure if you actually had any involvement with uh, the original composers or sound designers or it was just all listening to it. But what was oh, your no. approach to that? Well, so you put your finger right on it, Reese. It's the... Um, um, the technical limitations of the Nintendo DS, which is what we launched, you know, the, the, the title, the, the, um, the demo of Metroid Prime Hunters was a game called uh, First Hunt. First Hunt, it was, yeah. a, it was on a little, um, an SD card that was packed in. Hang on. Let me see if I have it. Here we go. <laughs> As if I'd planned for it. <laughs> nice. See that? Yeah. So this was the this was the launched 
um, it's called a, a, a launch title is when you ship saw, well, when a game is released at the, at the same time that a new console is launched. And so the, the DS was this new console and it was revolutionary because it had two screens, right? Mm. And um, the, I remember at the still at the time, the critics were like, oh, you, you, what, why, why have two screens? You can only look at one screen at one time, right? Well, anybody who's played the Nintendo DS knows that it's just like, I mean, you don't even think twice about it. It's just this brilliant thing. Well, anyways, a really awesome uh, platform, but it has limitations. Um, very limited in the at the time, particularly in the first generation when this was released, um, for how much um, like how much RAM and ROM we had to work with as the sound team. Like, <laughs> you know, sound teams always get the short end of the stick, right? Always. We always get the short end of the stick. <laughs> we're used to it. We were used to it. But in this case, it was like the stick was already only this long. And we got the short end of this tiny little stick. So um, I did the same thing that I did with Fairy Tale Adventure. We um, all the music is actually performance data it isn't technically midi data but it might as well be it's it's in that and when we talk about for performance data this is this is simple instructions that get sent to a synthesizer to a sound module and the instructions are like play the note stop playing the note play the note at this pitch play it this loud that's it so the instruction sets are very tiny and then they're triggering what we call a sound bank so it's a virtual instrument like just like we all musicians today use virtual instruments like you know a virtual orchestra um, and so that constraint very much colored how I approached um, designing the music for Metroid Prime Hunters, because uh, now I had to build my own sound banks. I had to make them sound good, but I don't need to have a whole orchestra if I'm going to only write a, um, a string you know, a piece for strings, right? So the sound bank for that part would just be just the string section. So then I can make those sound as good as they can and use all the size I have in the sound bank just for the strings. And then for the next level, now it's going to be, I'm going to have electric guitars, right? And those, I can't really sample those. I mean, I need to use actual recorded bits of guitars. So that means I'm going to make a custom sound bank that's just for that piece of music that's going to play at that point. And those decisions um, inform all sorts of creative choices that you make as a composer, because when you're composing for a real orchestra or for a, for a band, you know, you know, you know what the guitar sounds like, you know what the bass sounds like, you know what your singer sounds like, I, mean, I know what a piano or a synthesizer sounds like. But, but when you're designing um, a custom sound bank for MIDI data, you have to make each instrument yourself. Technically, I mean, yeah. you can use you can buy them now and different SDKs have them. But at that's at this time, that's what I did. I I don't know if that's too too uh, convoluted of an answer for you. But but it was the constraints of the technology that put me into a very specific path of making custom sound banks for my music. And that really um, had a lot to do with how the music ended up sounding. Because were you given specific direction to be like hey we want it to sound as close to metroid prime one and two as possible in terms of the the sound palette or the musical palette that it has because it has a very unique palette the metroid prime games right so so it's uh it would be quite difficult to emulate i'm sure right right especially on such a different system right so metroid prime was meant for the uh what was that at that time? Was that GameCube? The GameCube, yeah. By then, it was GameCube, right? So, so the GameCube compared to the DS is a you know is a much 
um, by today's standards, it still has limitations, but compared to the DS, it's almost unlimited, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, just because of what you have to work with. So um, the, 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 the amazing thing about working at Nintendo uh, for me was um, from day one, and I don't, I can't really explain this or say why it was other than, I guess it's not a big mystery that they're just, they were good people and they were smart. Um, but they pretty much let me do my thing. <laughs> I mean, I, and I, I'll, I'll share with you what guidance I got and how, how, how I was guided, which was I got guidance pretty much only when I was doing something that they felt maybe wasn't on track. So they almost, at the beginning, they tell you almost nothing, right? So we as a team decided what to do. And of course, like if I'm going to work on, this is a franchise title, Metroid, Metroid Prime Hunters, you know, was released after Metroid Prime and after Metroid Fusion. I think were the I think those were the two Metroid games that were immediately um, before Metroid Prime Hunters, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but in any event, so of course I'm going to listen to those games, and like you said, listen to Metroid Prime, and I played Metroid Prime, which I hadn't before. We got this this assignment, if you will. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is an awesome game, right? And so I played it for just dozens of hours. And I'm not a particularly adept video gamer. Um, I'm just not one of these people who, um, particularly action games, it's not um, puzzle games I can do, but action games are a little harder. So um, I worked through Metroid Prime for hours and hours and got completely sucked into it and became just this big fan of Metroid Prime. It's like, oh my gosh. And I kind of basically just tried to absorb the soundscape of that game of the way the music sounded um the way the sound effects sounded the way that the metroid universe deals with um particularly melodic jingles little little melodies that that key into specific behaviors like you know you, you gain an item you land on a new planet you unlock a, a door you beat a small enemy you beat a big enemy there each one of these functions has you know as you know from playing metroid games there are these these famous little little melodies that happen. And so they all have a, they all have a purpose. And I had to learn that because I didn't know that before, um, before I started, but, but I kind of absorbed what I felt was the mood of mostly from Metroid prime. And then I also played uh, Metroid fusion. Right. And that was, I think originally for game boy, but, but because boy DS, was, yeah. D, uh, DS was packed, uh, DS was backward compatible. I could play it on the DS. So I remember playing, um, metroid fusion or maybe i played it on my game boy advance but anyway i played that game a good bit too um and tried to sort of take the two and sort of triangulate <laughs> sort of those two things because because they're different right i mean the music in metroid fusion is quite different than the music in metroid prime i agree um but but they have there is an intersection the venn diagram of fusion and prime there's an overlap right and those overlap for example are those jingles right those little melodies da, 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 you know when uh you know you've solved a little minor puzzle whatever and um so that was that was my approach but they didn't really say it has to be this or it can't be that and then um all the work i did at nintendo everything that i did i would produce music we'd put it into the build and we'd send the milestones off for approval by um by the parent company, which is Nintendo Company Limited in Kyoto, Japan. And, uh, you know, we would get back notes, uh, you know, a week or two or whatever later. And then we'd meet as a team and we'd go over and very often we'd tell a conference with the folks in Japan and everybody would go through. And for the most part, um, I can't explain it, Reese. They just, 
they just liked my music for the most part. Occasionally they would say, uh, I do remember there was one piece that I had in there and I think it was Metroid where they, they were delicate about it, but they said it was a pentatonic melody and um, which is a five note melody, which is very popular in certain Asian cultures. And I happened to use one. I hadn't consciously used it to make it sound Japanese and they didn't like that piece. They said, it sounds, it sounds like you're trying to write Japanese music and we don't think that works that well. And that's the one thing that I remember in my mind stuck out. And I think they were absolutely right. I remember saying, yeah, you know what? You're right. I didn't hear that. And so, you know, I reworked that piece or, or dumped it and wrote another one or whatever. But so occasionally they, I would get a course correction because it just something didn't quite fit but for the most part they were like yep <laughs> keep going <laughs> it was it was it was crazy and and it, it felt really good and it was it was a lot of fun but it was also kind of stressful because nintendo are known for doing callbacks in their games in terms of franchises in terms of music did they give you any direction because i know some of the stuff you did was either sounds very similar to some of the music in metroid prime or it's a remix of something it is yeah some of it's direct i just i did that on purpose just because i thought it was the right thing to do but um i should mention that at the beginning of the project when this all started let me get the story right because this is a long this is like ancient history now right? yeah of course i can't even remember what i did last week you know <laughs> um but but the way it worked was first hunt was the little demo so we, as a, as a development team, would uh, very often Rory would come up with an idea or somebody on the team, the design team would come up with an idea and we would then prototype it we, on our own dime. And we would come up and we would try to find something that seemed cool. And, and then once, if it was good enough and if it passed our own internal process, then we would pitch it we would pitch it to NCL. I don't know if they still work this way. It's, it's quite different now. I think now they're much more tightly integrated, but at the time we were a little bit more of like a second party. It's a little hard to, to explain. And I don't know um, if that makes a lot of sense, but in any event, we would, we would say here, here's an idea. We want to do this. And, um, and actually I'm not even sure if that was really the process because I wasn't privy to that, but at one way or another, we would say, now we're going to do a thing. So it was like like 1080 Avalanche. Now we're going to do the sequel to 1080 Snowboarding, right? Or mm. Wave Race Blue Storm. Uh, you know, now we're, we're now we're going to do the we're going to do the um, the sequel to the original Mr. Miyamoto's original Wave Race. You know, for the N64. So, um, so at some point with Metroid um, Prime Prime Hunters, the first hunt was our first attempt, and it was really a demo. And I think for some reason. It, it came together very quickly. They said, this is great. We want to do this as a, as a launch title for the DS. And all of a sudden now we had like, like nine months to get this thing out the door as this, this cartridge was going to get mass manufactured for however many hundreds of thousands of these units they were going to release. So that yeah. was like, holy crap. So we just did that under with very little supervision and, um, and it was, I guess it was successful. I mean, I, I assume it, sell, it helped sell. I don't, I don't know. And I don't even know what people thought about First Hunt. But for us, it was super fun. And we thought, this is this cool little thing. And it was fun. And we did it. And it, and it, and it came out on the new machine, right? And it showed off like the DS. But then they said, well, now we're going to, that was successful. So now we're going to make Metroid Prime Hunters. And so when that project officially kicked off, it was like a second project. And then um, 
um, uh, Mr. Yamamoto came over from uh, 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 Japan uh, to um, and spent like as I recall, it was a week with with my colleague James Philipson and myself, and we um, and he also brought his lead sound designer uh, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember the gentleman's name, but um, the two of them were wonderful, and they spent tons of time with James and me showing us talking about Metroid Prime hunters what it could be what it should be what it might be um things to watch out for things that we could try things that would work better things that wouldn't and it was a good bit of guidance that kind of kicked us off and set us in the right in the right path and i don't remember specifically but i'm pretty sure we, we probably talked about well um i probably said i you know let's it'd be nice to use some of the tunes from the original from from metroid prime and i can rework them to make them fit on the DS and make them fit our game. And then other stuff, I'll do original material. And of course I'll get all those, those drink jingles in. And I do remember being chastised a bit because that, because um, the first hunt demo, I, I was ignorant of some of those basic things about the Metroid prime universe. So I'm not sure if this will be one of those, one of those clips that you're going to want to <laughs> edit out of your interview or not, but um, they were very gently like, um, because I had misused, so, so these, these, you know what I'm talking about, these jingles, like, you know, yeah, yeah. like when, when Samus gets to, um, picks up an item, for example, he picks up an item. Right. And yeah. so, but there's, but there's actually a specific one she, when she gets to a new planet like that one. And I had, I had, I had used it like in the intro sequence in the video, just cause I just, and I didn't realize its function. And he was like, you know, you realize that we have to, you know, this, these, this music has to be used in this way. And so that's, I had to go back and rethink a, a lot of what I did, but um, I haven't listened to first hunt. I, I don't really have it as an archive anywhere, so I'm not sure, but I imagine it'd be a fun thing to do to pick apart what's wrong with it, you know, where at, it, in which ways is the, are, is the, are, are these key, these important jingles being used improperly. <laughs> so did it come up where you would discuss the blurring of sound design and music because the metroid franchise is pretty much known for that where the two can sometimes blend and you can't tell the difference between sound effect and music so did you work um with james phillipson in trying to mesh that together um i the the simple answer is yes but that's just by default because we're musicians and we're, we're game composers so so um you're absolutely right about everything you just said reese um i would i would i would expand on that to say that 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 is a fundamental principle of sound design for me as a composer sound designer for all video games is that is that i look at and i teach my students at digipen this is that unlike a film in, in a film you create a soundtrack and the soundtrack consists of three possible elements, music, sound effects, and voice recording. Those are the only three things that you can hear. <laughs> now, where the distinction between music and sound effects happens, it's not a hard line. There are, there are, there are sound effects that are musical, right? You can have a snare drum for you know, impact, and there are, there are um, musical instruments can be used for sound design. And the same thing with voice. You can use your voice to make sound effects, and you can use sound effects that, that can sound vocalized. But that's a, a film soundtrack consists of those components and it's a linear process. Once you compose it and mix it, it's the same every time when you play it. In a game, you're making a soundscape, I call it. And that soundscape is 
still a blend of those three elements, music and sound effects and voice. But in a game, you have a different um, constraint. And that is that the game player has to know at all times, whatever's coming out of the speakers, they're depending on that in the same way that they're depending on the pixels, the light that's coming out of the screen to give them feedback on what to do next, to let them know how well they're doing at the moment. I'm, I fired my weapon. Did I hear the projectile leave the weapon? Did I hear the projectile impact the enemy? If the enemy hit me with a projectile, do I know it? <laughs> right. And how? So we, we, user feedback is essential. So the blurring of the line with sound design and music is it's a two-edged sword, right? Because um, you can't confuse, you don't want to confuse your player by having these awesome, I've some of my students have done this and they'll, they'll make this awesome background track that has really neat, like weird percussive instruments in it that sound like, you know, brake drums or, you know, rattling chains or something, you know, like very music concrete type sounds in a, in a, in a, in a, in a piece of music using a percussion track. But in the wrong context, in the wrong game, those will those will befuddle the player who will hear those and think, wait a minute, what have you ever played a video game when when you heard that and there's something in the music soundtrack that just an occasional sound and you're you thought that it was like something that you did or didn't do or was about to get you there was you thought it was feedback from the game, but it's just atmosphere from the music. So that's a really um, important distinction. Now, having said that, you want I want any soundscape that I compose to be a seamless integration of sound design and music. I don't see them as two separate, separate. They, they're not even two separate layers because the layers are, should be totally intermingled and the best sound design. And I think a lot of Nintendo games are examples of this. Um, you know, certainly the, um, you know, the Legend of Zelda series, the entire series and particularly Breath of the Wild, just as a shining example of just godly sound design <laughs> and music, but where all the sound effects are integrated and all the musical instruments are integrated so that it's a, a seamless universe of sound and they all work brilliantly together and they never clash unless they're supposed to clash and that's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable, right? So that, in other words, everything is conscious, everything is deliberate, everything is designed. Because mm. video games work in a non-linear sequence sometimes in terms of how the sound can kind of... Exactly. It, it come in, right? So say with Wind Waker, because I know you've mentioned this um, before so every time you're in battle and you hit an enemy you'll have that din 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 that kind of it's on the beat somehow some yeah auto magically <laughs> <laughs> so as a as a composer and sound designer how difficult is that to actually do it's devilishly difficult it's <laughs> it's, it's 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 what we strive for it's what we live for um uh, a game like breath of the wild if if the, the if you dissect it which i have and there's a there's a great um there's a great online video by scruffy i don't know if you're familiar with the guy named or i think it's, it's uh, somebody named scruffy is a fantastic video on the on the uh, music and sound design of breath of the wild it's like a 15 minute video and he he clearly worked with the the developers themselves because he's got crazy inside information about how they did some of these things but that level of sophistication things like like opening up a high pass filter uh, on the music when the weather clears. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, totally, he calls it hidden sound design. Um, but, but these things are really, they, they're, they're hard to do and they're time consuming and you can only even bother with them once you've met the, the 
basic threshold of of working on a, on a, a video game, even just an average indie game, um, you need to deliver good music. If it's shitty music, you shouldn't be doing it. You sh- you're 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 in the wrong job, right? So the music has to be good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's 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 hard right there. I'm sorry. I don't care how good you are as a composer. It's hard to write good music. It just is. It's easy to write shitty music and it's hard to write good music. So you got to write good music and you have to have good sound design, right? You can't just phone it in and you can't just use some library and just throw it together and take the first gunshot that you that you come to in the first footstep, right? I mean, we spend hundreds of hours on the dumbest things as sound designers. I mean, getting one button click on Mario versus Donkey Kong, one obscure button click on one menu, like getting it right. I can remember going to like 12 revisions, 12 revisions, you know, and, you know, because it, because it wasn't right. It was, it was popping out of the mix too much. Or I remember we did one thing. It was around, they didn't like, we were doing musical sound design. So we're using a xylophone, which is a really great musical instrument for, for, for uh, UI and user interface type sounds because it's percussive and it's musical at the same time and you can do musical puzzles with it. But anyway, I remember James did that and, and we got feedback. Our notes we got back from uh, from Kyoto were um, it sounded too much like Halloween. And, you know, the thing is, in that case, they were actually right. But it was almost more of a cultural cultural perception. It was an f- odd thing, but we just hadn't heard that. So it isn't always that you're not that you have to redo it because it isn't right. It's that it's not good enough. Right. So every aspect of these minor details getting um you know the the wind waker combat music and how that's timed uh to the beat um it's some of that same mechanic works in in breath of the wild as well it's a little more subtle um it's quite technical and it what i think it's it's changed the um the discipline of of being a composer it's one of the big differences of being a film composer versus being a game composer um to be a game composer it's no longer enough just to be a great composer. <laughs> I hate to say it. I'm hopefully I'm not crushing anybody's dreams here, but being a, just being a good, good composer isn't enough. You also have to be quite a technician and you need to take the time to do your homework, to understand the tools and uh, tools like audio kinetic wise, which is what we call middleware. It's a, it's a software suite that sits not a software suite. It's a piece of software that sort of sits between the production phase and the implementation phase of, of, of game development, audio, game audio development. So you'll make your sounds using a DAW like Reaper or Pro Tools or Logic or FL Studio or whatever you use to make your sounds, your multi-track recording software. And now you've got these wave files, their recordings. How do they go in the game? Well, in the old days, what you'd call is you'd throw them over the fence. You'd, you'd bundle them up, put them in an email or put them on a flash drive or on a CD or, or whatever, put, put them on the server. And then you tell your programmer, okay, this sound, you give them a list, sound file A, this is when, this is for footsteps on snow. <laughs> sound file B, this is for footsteps on grass. Sound file C, this is footsteps on water. Okay, just, just to say and sound file d this is a music background music to play in level one and here's sound file e this is a background music to play in level two and then the programmer would write a bunch of custom code or use whatever tools they have to try to implement those sounds the way that you wanted them and then you'd work with that person that audio programmer for hundreds of hours 
because you say, oh, it's too loud. It's got to be quieter. And then the programmer would have to change a line of code and change a number from 118 to 122 to make it sound a little bit louder. So now we have tools called middleware that let us as composer sound designers do all of that or most of that. You still need an audio programmer uh, to make a video game. You can't do it without one. But with these new tools now, a lot of this... Um, ability, including some of the things that you're talking about, uh, Reese, about um, not so much the timing of the battle timing of music, combat music, that's particularly challenging. That's you, you picked one of the probably the most technically challenging types of interactive music that that can be done. Um, but even even things like changing your footsteps when you when you're on different terrain types, you can do a lot of that now yourself using middleware like Audio Kinetic Wise or FMOD Studio. And then you, you just simply export events and then you just tell your programmer, these are the events you play under these conditions. And then those game calls then call those things automatically. Um, so audio middleware has changed our world just immensely and we spend a lot of time with it. So do a lot of your students that come through uh, DigiPen, are they already kind of well-versed in both composing and sound design or are they more, they have more of an, a knowledge of one or the other? Great question. Um, there's not one answer. So our program is, my program is pretty new. It's, it's, it's only been around for 10 years and we only take 15 people a year. So it's small and it's new. Um, students coming into the program are only required of, to, a couple of things are really only required of them. So it's the threshold of getting in isn't really, it's not super exclusive. It may sound that way, but it's not. Um, we do require that students play a musical instrument and that they read music for that instrument. So, and that may seem like an odd um, filter to, to be applying for this field, but um, I found that it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, so we get some students who have little or no experience using a DAW. So by DAW, I'm talking about DAW, Digital Audio Workstation, yeah. um, uh, software like like Logic Pro or GarageBand, uh, FL Studio, you know, uh, MixCraft, Pro Tools, those kind of things. Some students come in having never used really a lot of those tools at all, little or none. But they play they they played trumpet in the high school band, and so they can they can read music. They're not they're not they're not necessarily um, virtuoso players. Um, so it's not like a music conservatory program where they're having you audition, which we do have students audition, but it's just to make sure that they can actually read music for their instrument. Um, so we're not we're not filtering for um, great players, but we need people who can play music because what the program um, consists of is a certain uh, amount of musical training, traditional, somewhat traditional music training, particularly in composition, because we're talking about composing music, and then a whole bunch of sound design training and music technology training. Now, we do get students. I have some students who already have degrees. <laughs> so I get students. Oh, and, wow. and, and yeah, I, we do. And it's odd. Um, um, so, so our program is a four-year undergraduate degree. So it's a bachelor of arts degree, bachelor of arts in music and sound design. We have students, um, who come in, who already have a bachelor of science degree in uh, physics, for example, I've got a, I got a guy who's got a physics degree in the program right now. Um, and you know, he went through, went through four years of college, got his physics degree and decided that he really didn't like physics that much, uh, you know, <laughs> but all that it happens exactly right but meanwhile he's busy what he really loves is playing piano and he's learned to play piano beautifully 
and and he loves video games and sound design. So so those are very different entry level positions. So the program is unique in that it's it's kind of customized for the the people who come in. So all we expect though is the ability to read music on an instrument, um, and it really helps if people have played around with the doll a little bit. So we get st students coming in who've, who've, who've been doing sound design, um, you know, either as uh, amateurs or even as professionals. Um, and they just want to up their game on the technology side of things. And they want the connections that DigiPen provides, which is we're very tied with industry. So a lot of our students then are, get the chance to, to meet and work with, you know, Com local companies here like Bungie or 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 Amazon Games or uh, Highwire Studios or, or places like that or Nintendo or, or Microsoft. So um, yeah, it's kind of all over the map. Because mm. I kind of find there's a bit of a split when it comes to audio these days in terms of the big AAA companies or, or studios, I should say. They usually isolate people into one role because the teams are so big, right? So you might. You might have uh, a person that's working on composing or a team that's solely working on composing and another team that focuses on sound design and another team that works on implementation as opposed to indie studios. Um, yeah. So what would be the process in terms of teaching people to be able to switch between both? Because if somebody's used to doing both composing and sound design and then they apply for a job and then they end up only being isolated to one thing uh they they might not be prepared for it well i think that that is that is what you've just outlined is just how the world works for almost for almost any industry right so i think it's quite common uh, particularly in the arts um for people to have to prepare broadly and then as they find their way through the world they will either by intention or by luck or bad, good or bad luck, gravitate towards one or another uh, specialization in their field, right? So, so um, it's my contention that, that if, because it's an undergraduate program, very often we're, we are, we are focused on or dealing with students who have just graduated high school. So that means they're, you know, they're 18 years old and they're out of high school now. In, at least in the in the in the American system of education, it's not a highly focused, uh, a directed thing where you come out of high school and now you're you know, you're you're straight ready for pre med or now you're straight ready for even a vocation. Right? It's pretty much you're just lucky if you make it through and you get out and you're you're not a drug addict. You know, I mean, you know, you're just you're just <laughs> lucky to get out of the system intact, but most students don't come out of high school knowing exactly what they want to do. And most people change careers. I think the average is five times during their lifetimes, five times average people mm. change their careers. So when you're designing, when I was asked uh, uh, to design these programs, I'm specifically making them as broad as they can be so that people will have the foundational skills they can to have a lifelong career in that field. And that field that I defined it is very broadly, I defined it as, as music and sound design. So, and again, it's my contention. I don't know that it's controversial, but I know that not everybody agrees with this um, premise, which is that sound design starts with music. If you want to be a good sound designer, I've, I've never met a sound designer who didn't have a musical background. They may not have been a trained musician, but it's, it's sound design and music are basically 
almost the same thing. They are, it's manipulating sound to have a, to have an effect. It's like the art, it's like the visual arts, right? I mean, you say, well, are you going to be a painter? Are you going to be an illustrator? Are you going to be an animator? Um, well, it starts with your visual perception. Can, how do you see the world? Can you distinguish colors? Can you, can you, can you, do you understand form? Do you, do you have a sense of perspective? All of these things are foundational skills. And I think they all apply to music and sound design. So our program tries to strike a balance with all of that, but, but you're absolutely right. When it, um, when you get out into the world, who knows where you're going to wind up and what you're going to have to do. Now, don't forget that AAA studios are only one aspect of the industry, right? I mean, the indie game industry is huge mm -hmm. and many people, if not most people start out there. Right. And if you're on an indie game, you generally you're going to be the only person doing sound. <laughs> I mean, most indie teams, you know, now it's changing, which I'm happy to happy to say, but, but most indie teams have, you know, in fact, in my career at, 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 at every company I was at, so it was five companies. Um, the, I, I never worked on a big on a with a big audio team at NST. It was a small company; it was only fifty people, um, uh, but there were two two audio people, right? Just mm. me and James. <laughs> when I started, it was just me, and I said, "Hey, look, I really ought to have a second person, right?" So, um, but yes, you're right. In in big, bigger studios now, I mean, one of my graduates is at um, uh, Nate. He's at uh, Bungie, and he's I think he's an interactive dialogue designer. I think that's, I think that's, I mean, he's just dealing with, with interactive dialogue because a big, a big game now they'll have tens of thousands of lines of dialogue. Yeah. So, yeah. So people specialize, right. But, but what are the skills you need to, to, to do that? I mean, is somebody going to really train to be an interactive dialogue designer? It's like, no, you don't, you don't do an undergraduate program to training that you have to say, well, you need to be an audio engineer. You need to be able to use all, I'm looking around my studio at all. You can't really see it. It's a mess in here, but, um, you know, how to use a mixer, how to use a microphone, what's a preamp, you know, what's a compressor, just audio engineering, recording, how do you record stuff so that the recordings sound good? How do you mix those recordings? That's mixing, right? Um, and then music is a part of that as well, because your sound design has to work with music. So when you're designing sound, yes, you could try to design sound to work, you could try to design sound to work with a particular piece of music, but in my career, most of the time I was doing both, or at least I had something to do with both. So I can say, well, I need to understand how both music and sound design are composed so that when they play together, as you said, in these metros games, so that they can work in harmony and not have, not step on each other's toes and know when one has to step out of the way to let the other one really do its job. Mm. So as a program director at DigiPen, I'm sure that takes up a lot of your hours, but I suppose you also have to try and stay up with technology and the constant evolution of it, <laughs> which must be difficult because you've obviously got to set up these courses to teach kids as well and make sure that they're not going out into the world with information that could become obsolete, particularly in the age, well, this age where everything's starting to become automated and you can do things through different algorithms and I, I see that's the way and I think you you very much feel the same in terms of music and sound design in terms of being able to program stuff through algorithms and and all of that jazz yeah so how do you how do you manage to do that to do your courses teach these students while still trying to stay up with what's going on and making sure that uh, the stuff that they're being taught isn't 
while it doesn't become obsolete? Great question. Um, yeah. So it's what keeps me up at night. It's why it's why this this job it does have a certain amount of stress to it because I feel an obligation. Um, you know, you're expecting people to come and spend, you know, thirty thousand dollars a year. You know, for four years, and you 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 just you're yeah. I have a responsibility to have it be relevant, right? And to mm. have it and not be, as you said, obsolete. So part of my hedging, hedging my bets, and we all, I think anybody who runs any kind of a college program or, you know, teaches even has to have the same concern is how can I teach the foundational skills so that people will be able to adapt to the changing tool sets that keep coming up every year or every month. And that's, so it, it's kind of, I know it sounds a little corny, but it's like, you know, they say, give a man a fish, he eats for a day, but teach a man to fish, he, he'll eat for a lifetime, right? Mm. So it's kind of like that, where, um, it, which is why I think the music part of it is important, even though there are way fewer music jobs than there are sound design jobs, um, that I think music underlies sound design um, from an educational standpoint. Um, it's a good way to teach the critical listening skills. So what are the foundational skills that I, that I, that I think will, will um, be proof against um, rapidly changing technology, right? That's, that's the question. Like what, what can it be? And there's, you know, there's no guarantee. So I don't know. And I don't have an Oracle, but I think that, that in my own career, the fact that I had extensive musical training, it was shocking to me that in all these technical tasks that I was required to do for, for 20 years as an audio director, how much, how often I pulled on my musical training to get me through the problem solving and not on technical training. Um, uh, because ultimately when you're dealing with sound, a, a sound recording and in a game, it's not a sound recording. It's, it's, you know, three dozen sound recordings being mixed at runtime based on what you just did. But still, how do you make a sound record? How can you tell if a sound recording is any good or not? Well, what does it sound like to you? Does it sound good to you or does it sound bad? And so we've, everybody has, you know, for other, unless, unless you're hearing impaired, everybody has ears and they can hear a certain set of frequencies, you know, from around, you know, whatever it is around down to maybe 300 Hertz to, to up to, or, or 30, 20 or 30 Hertz to maybe up to around by your, my, by my age, maybe if you're lucky 13 or 14 kilohertz. So in that frequency, can you, can you distinguish the difference between something that sounds pleasing and something that sounds irritating? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've played a video game where the sound sounded bad and you just, or the music kind of bad and you just desperately scramble to find the options menu to turn the music off. Right. I mean, have you ever had that experience with a video game? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So <laughs> we won't name any, we won't name any, I don't want to shame anybody, but, but um, that's all too easy to happen. Even, even for a good composer that can happen pretty quickly in a video game. So having the sensibility I think teaching, like, can you teach taste? I think you can. I think you can, given enough time and examples. And it's by um, it's by examples. So, giving people foundational school uh, tools in um, in being able to distinguish between how sounds 
sound good together and how they don't, and then how to achieve that through processes of mixing, whether it's using a mixing board for a piece of music or whether it's using Audio Kinetics Wise Mixer to do the mix of your game so that when the boss battle comes in so that the music is allowed to breathe when it needs to breathe and then the sound effects or the how the dialogue is, let's say, on a side chain so that the dialogue can punch through the frequencies and be heard. So nothing more frustrating than playing a game. And, you know, I know most video games put dialogue on screen, even if it's an audible dialogue, but for movies, you know, it's a common complaint. It's like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't understand the dialogue, right? yeah. you know? So, <laughs> so though for game audio people, those are the kind of things that, that I think that they're, they're foundational skills that people that I would like students to have under their belt so that when they do graduate and they start to look around um, that they can adapt. And all of a sudden, whatever the successor to Audio Kinetics Wise is going to be, I don't know what it'll be. There'll be a better tool at some point, or or they'll release a new version, and it'll be utterly different, and they'll make the interface look different or something. I like to think that we teach people how to learn how to use tools, not how to use a tool, but how to, how to quickly learn how to use a new tool. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. It makes perfect thing. sense. It's, 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 and, and I don't really know how to do that, but that's what we try to do. <laughs> do you try to be a bit of a realist with a lot of these students in terms of how competitive this space is? And it, it, I feel it can also be like a bit of an emotional roller coaster because there'll be times in the industry where you're up here, then you hit rock bottom. It's kind of all over the place. In, in terms of that. And I mean, I, I know quite a few musicians and um, definitely in the age of media and Hollywood and all that stuff, sometimes it can give you a bit of a delusional mindset in terms of, oh, I'm going to be the the greatest composer ever or, or, or all this. Um, and it's easy to get into that frame of mind. So I, do you try and just be real with your students about it and just be like, look, this is the reality? Um well, what is what is real, right? What is what is real? Is it? I'm thinking as a young person, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know that 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 musician, being a musician, was a career. I mean, that you know, people got paid to be musicians who weren't, let's say, you know, like Michael Jackson or you know, some rock star, <laughs> yeah. Jagger, right? I mean, you know, you say, well, there's you know, there's Britney Spears or there's Ariana, whatever, you know, uh, you know, there's those people. And they're in this weird pantheon of the gods, right? And then this, is, and she said, "Well, I want to be that." It's like saying, "I want to play for the NBA, right?" Or "I want to, I want to play Major League Baseball, right?" Or "I want to be on whatever the, you know, I want to win the World Cup, right?" So, if you look talking to young people, it's like, "Do you want to be? You want to? Do we want to say, well, no, don't, don't even think of that." you know, don't dream that because you'll never do that. And you're not, you're not good enough and you'll never, you're, there's too many people who are better than you. So don't bother. Right. So I don't think that that, I don't think, you know, that's one extreme end of the spectrum from real. There's the utter realism, right? It's very unlikely for anybody, anybody in the world who wants to play major league baseball, that they will ever actually play major league baseball. Right. And yet, and yet every year I, I just use baseball as a, as a, as a, yeah, yeah. example yeah because yeah. it's sure. because it's very similar it's highly competitive and even beyond com it's not just a matter of the skills i mean the people who get to do that aren't 
just the people who are the best in the world at it, which they are, but they're all the people, they're also the people who had the means and um, not just the luck, but who had the privilege to be, to be shepherded to that point. And usually that boils down to money and class as well. So I'll just mm. say it. That's very true. And of course you get, you know, people scouting people from, you know, who don't have privilege and they, they do make it to those ranks, but same thing true with music, right? Who there aren't, there aren't that many jobs for composers. So uh, I want, gosh, uh, I want to, I just, I love video game music. I want to write video game music. I'm a kid. Uh, and then, and then somebody's come right and said, well, no, I mean, don't do that because you'll never make a living at it because there aren't enough jobs. So that was partly the problem that, that I set out to address when I designed this particular program, which was, I said, I contended that based on my experience that there actually are partly because of the video game industry, there are quite a lot of jobs that involve sound design and music. And they are, I'll give you an example. There's a whole new aspect of, of, of sound design that's relatively recent. It's been, it's been lurking in the shadows for years, but I call it music design. Uh, my friend Guy Whitmore talks about this. He gave a great talk at our audio symposium some years ago about music design. So music design is not music composition. Music composition is you're composing the notes and the timbres and the textures, and you put together a piece of music, and now it's a piece of music. Um, music design is something unique to, to nonlinear media like video games, which is how does the music behave as you play it? Just like you said in Wind Waker. In this case, that music design called for the percussive attacks of the music to align with when the player actually sword strikes the enemy. And it's like, wait a minute, you'd have to predict the future to be able to do that. It's like, no, you actually don't, but that's music design, music design, designing. Okay. When I go from, when I transition from this level to this level, how is the music going to behave? Or when I go from the menu to the level, or when I go from my exploration mode, or when my health drops below a certain amount and the music changes in that way what how how what happens and how does it happen so that's music design implementing that in wise or in fmod studio um is a really technical challenging task but before you can even do it the implementation of it you have to design it in your head mm. and you have to think about it so music design is now another technical task that is that that's that people as you talked about in AAA studios as people specialize um is, is music design. That's just another aspect of the, of the thing. So, so when I set out to design these, these programs, uh, the, the founder of DigiPen, Claude Comer, who was the chairman at NST, who hired me. So when he uh, left NST to, to devote his time full-time to DigiPen uh, in, in 2011, he asked me to, to come and, and design these programs. And, and I did. And what I wanted to do was to, was to say, how, how can, how can we provide and encourage young people who are interested in music and sound to, to take a four-year undergraduate degree that will prepare them then to do the next step, whatever that's going to be. And it doesn't mean nobody's going to go through my, most people aren't going to go through my program or any program and then waltz into a full-time job. Although 
I've been shocked how many of our students have done that. Several of them have. They're at Turn 10 Studios now. They're at Bungie. They're at, they're at some great places. So I'm bragging. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm right. really proud of it. I'm proud of it because, because that was like they said it couldn't be done. It's like, well, actually, it can be done. It can be done. And there are jobs out there. And they're not all, they're not all the highest paying jobs. I say if people want to make money and you love video games, learn to be a video game programmer. <laughs> Because <laughs> really, programming is programming is, you know, it, it pays better. It pays mm. better. But but for those of us who are musicians, it's like most musicians I know, we do it because we have to. I mean, we're just not willing not to play music. Um, um, do you play do you play an instrument? Do you do Yeah, you, yeah, I play I play piano. I studied audio engineering, so I know well, I know you. a bit about this stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, you know, audio engineering by itself is is it's similar to music in that in that it's a lifelong passion and then you have to scrabble for to figure out a way to make a living doing it right yeah that's <laughs> because right. it's that's not right. it's not like um and you have to want to do it more badly than the next person does right so that you know so that you keep seeking out all those opportunities and you do all of the crazy stuff that we do to try to to try to get forward in the world in the, in doing the things that we love to do. And of course the challenge is, can you, can you get somebody to give you money to do what you love to do? I mean, that's what we, that's kind of what we, what we hope. Yeah. I think you've kind of found the Holy grail when that, when that happens, when you're doing something that you love to do and you're getting paid for it and paid well. Yeah. Although <laughs> even that has, even I'll tell you, I'll tell you, even that has a, it's transitory. It, it, it never, it, I've talked to a lot of my colleagues in the business, people like, you know, Marty O'Donnell, you know, the guy, the composer for Halo or, yeah. or um, uh, Brian Schmidt, who teaches me at, at uh, teaches with me at DigiPen. He runs game sound con and he's, he designed the original Xbox uh, sound and worked on Xbox and, and the Xbox 360. And um, it's only, I mean, there may be people when they and they get there and then they stay there and that's what it is. But usually the I Ching has a great uh, trigram. I don't know which one it says that it says no plane, not followed by a slope. So in other words, nothing ever stays static for the same time. It's going to either go up or going to go down. And um, like the way I've talked about my career at Nintendo, it sounds like it was just like great and happy and stuff and it's like it was some of the most stressful point of my time of my life and not it wasn't all fun and there were times when i just felt like what am i doing here what are other times uh, on the one end where where you have this thing called i'm sure you've heard of imposter syndrome where you yes. feel like where you're like oh my gosh what am i doing here i can't do this they think i'm something that i'm not and that's just that's horrible and almost all artists have to deal with it and you just you just have to deal with it. But on the other end of it was like, I don't like this anymore. I'm just, I'm just not being challenged. I'm just, we're just doing another sequel. I'm just, uh, you know, and, and, and you, and you, and you slap yourself because you go, you realize that your former self from 20 years ago, if you heard you now would just would say, look, I'm going to take you out in the backyard and I'm going to shoot you <laughs> because you have the coolest job in the world. Right. But it isn't always the coolest job in the world. So I think it's a more organic process that we have to, we have to keep fighting for what we love and, and you do have to keep reinventing yourself and keep learning new things. And that's hopefully what I'm teaching my students to do at DigiPen. Yeah. Well, that's an um, important 
lesson I think that you've pointed out that just because you love to do something it doesn't mean that every single aspect of it you'll end up enjoying all the time because I just yeah it's just not humanly possible hmm well hey I'll wrap up there because I don't want to keep you too long but thank you so much for taking time out and doing this uh, I very much appreciate it um, that that I kind of feel like I've I've sat in a bit of a lecture theater with you yeah, <laughs> I'm. I, I tend to do that. I'm. I'm sorry. Um, if no, it's if, great. If, if it's great. Gonna, I've learned know. so much. So I very much well, appreciate it. Yeah, I, I. I was. Um. Yeah. Well. Anyway, it's been a pleasure, Reese. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great. Um. So, if are there any free lectures or anything by you online, or do you have to sign up to DigiPen? Yeah. No. We. Um. That's a great point. Um. Well, I suppose this is one, so they can get it from this. <laughs> no, um, there I did one. I did one on, on when the pandemic hit. When the pandemic hit, we had to go all online, and so teaching audio online is just like, oh my god, it was just horrible, right? Dealing with the de degraded sound and everything. So one uh, in the middle of it, I did a. I think you can find my. I did a Twitch stream where I walked through the um, the first part of uh, Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild, and it's literally it's it's on my Twitch channel. <laughs> so, and it was a lecture for my class, and you can see I'm actually talking to my student. But it was it's not really a lecture. I'm just I'm just talking about the sound design in the game, just as a user. I mean, I didn't work on Breath of the Wild. I had nothing to do with the game. Um, so that was there's one of my, and it was actually a class lecture, and I and I have it recorded, and it's around, but I think it's still up on Twitch. So there would be one that you could find, maybe. Okay, I'll see if I can maybe find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you look on Twitch, just look for L. I think it's just Sh Sh Lawrence Schwedler or whatever. You should there's there's one, but there's there's some other cruft there that may not be <laughs> worth seeing. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about trying to get stuff out into the world recently. I, I I I'm gonna try to put that in my hat and think to do that because there's nothing proprietary about my lectures it's just me talking about you know sound and music and stuff so um i'll try to figure out a way to, to put some of that out i think that's a great idea yeah cool well hey thank you so much for doing this again all right yeah that that is the show everyone make sure you share like and subscribe uh and take care all see right you later. thank you see you